0: God's mercy. And so if you will please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. As we conclude the book of Jonah, bring to a finish our mini-series, our expositional series in the book of Jonah. And as you're turning to chapter 4, I want to alert you to something very important as we read this final chapter. In it, you will find three questions. These three questions are very important for us to be able to understand not only this chapter, but the book. In fact, the final question is the question of the entire book. So you have to wait till the end of the book to figure out the key question of the entire book. And as you're turning there, I I want to once again pray and ask God to help us understand this text. Because God the Holy Spirit is here to illumine, to bring to light this text. He's given, God the Holy Spirit was sent by God the Son, God the Father, so that He might point and reveal Jesus and illumine the Scriptures. So I'm going to pray for Him to do that, to arrest every heart this morning, that we might pay careful attention to this word that he might apply it to our lives as a church and as individuals. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach your word. Give me utterance, Lord. May I speak even your word, your way. Lord, even apart from what I've prepared in this manuscript, these notes, Lord, speak through your word and through your servant, and speak to the hearts of your people and build your church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read the text together. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that that attacked the plant so that it withered. for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? It's unusual for a book of the Bible to end in a question. In fact, it is so unusual that it happens only twice. Here, at the end of Jonah, and at the end of the book of Nahum, let me read to you Nahum 3.9 on the screen. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. And here's the question that ends the book of Nahum. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? And both books, Nahum, And Jonah, deal with the city of Nineveh. Both prophets spoke to Nineveh. Now, Nahum's question, concluding his book, was written some 100 years after Jonah, and it spoke of God's judgment on Nineveh. God would judge the Ninevites for their wickedness after having used them to discipline his own people, Israel. But, going back to our text, the final verse of the book of Jonah, 4.11, speaks of mercy. It spoke of mercy at that time. God would have mercy on the wicked Ninevites. And the driving question for the entire book was whether God had the right to do so. Look again at Jonah 4.11. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? See, Jonah never answered the question. And that was by design. Because the question was meant to resound to us down through the ages. See, God asked Jonah and he asks us today the same question. God speaking, is my mercy mine to do with as I please? Am I free to be merciful to whomever I desire? Or as I've crafted it, the driving question for this text, can God display his mercy to whomever and whenever he pleases? Can God display his mercy to whomever and whenever he pleases? Maybe for some of you today... The question is not whether God can display his mercy to whomever and whenever he pleases, but rather for some of you, you may be asking whether God is merciful at all. You can understand the question at the end of Nahum much easier than the question at the end of Jonah because you view God exclusively as a God of judgment. He's a God of judgment, and he will ultimately judge all evil, including yours and mine, That is true. But friend, he's also a God of mercy. We come to this text, this chapter, we must preach what it says. And what it says is this great question. Can I exercise my mercy to whom and whenever I desire? So I ask you, if you're you're wondering whether God is merciful, do you believe that God is merciful? And as you listen to this message, I pray that you will indeed see God's mercy on the backdrop of his judgment and that you would respond to God's mercy offered to all who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the only one who makes God's mercy available to sinful man. See, the emphasis of Jonah chapter 4 is on Jonah's reaction to the display of God's mercy. That's actually the the main point of the whole book. If you look at verse 1, you immediately see that Jonah was not happy about God's display of mercy toward toward Nineveh. Chapter 4, verse 1 is connected directly to chapter 3, verse 10. Let me go to 3.10 for you, what Jim Britt preached last week. It concludes with this. When God saw what they did, they, the Ninevites... How? They turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it, what's the it? What we just read in chapter 3, verse 10. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Why was he angry? He was angry that the Ninevites turned from their violent and wicked ways, and he was angry that God then relented of the disaster that Jonah felt the Ninevites deserve for those violent and wicked ways. It burned him up. He was bothered a lot. Now on the surface, Jonah's reaction made no sense at all. What preacher or prophet would get angry that his preaching produced repentance and God's mercy toward those to whom he preached? I, for one, would not be angry this morning if the folks that are here and listen to me week in and week out but don't seem to understand, have no life of God. This is like whatever to them. If God's word suddenly broke into their lives, they repented. They started crying. I mean, real tears. They hit their knees. They said, oh God, I'm sorry for ignoring you and and making fun of you and being distracted during the messages. I want to now serve you. I would actually be very happy about that. I mean, somehow it would be hard for me to envision Mickey and Dina McDaniel driving home on Saturday night, December 14th, after Christmas near the beach, and it would be hard for me. To imagine them after maybe seeing, and let's pray in Jesus' name, seeing hundreds of people truly saved and revival hit this area, it's hard for me to imagine as they're driving home, if you were driving behind them, they'd be like yelling at each other and they're going, I can't believe God did that. (laughs) I'm so angry. Why would he save those wicked people, those undeserving wicked people at Young Circle in Hollywood, Florida? But that's exactly what Jonah did. See, Jonah, Jonah, in verse 2, he fires up this angry prayer to God. Look at it, verses 2 and 3. And and as you look at it, I want you to note the stark contrast between Jonah's angry prayer here in 4, 2, and 3 and his thankful, praise-filled prayer in chapter 2. Chapter 4, angry prayer. Chapter 2, happy prayer. What's the difference in the two prayers? The difference is the object of God's mercy. You see, in chapter 2, Jonah was the object of God's mercy and being saved from the great fish. In chapter 4, the pagan Ninevites were the object of God's mercy. See, Jonah and his prayer was telling God, listen God, you're free to display your mercy as long as it is to someone that I deem deserves it. As long as it's someone I sanction. Do you ever say that to God? And Jonah, and Jonah angrily argues with God. Why? See, I believe that Jonah was angry. And if we're angry, it's for the same reason Jonah was angry because he misunderstood and he forgot who God is. And he misunderstood and he forgot the nature of God's covenant mercy. Friends, we must understand and remember God's covenant mercy. Point one, understand and remember God's covenant mercy. Look again at the first part of Jonah's prayer in chapter 4, verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah angrily tells God that this is why I told you back in chapter 1 that I was not going to answer your call. This is why I jumped on that ship. This is why I was fleeing from you to Tarshish. I knew you were going to show those undeserving Ninevites mercy, and that's why I didn't want to go. But see, he misquotes the Bible. Because in in verse 3, he's actually quoting, in verse 2, he's actually quoting from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. If you have your Bible, if you can turn back to that, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and look at th- chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which is what Jonah was quoting, says this. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Jonah says the following. <clears throat> the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, slow, To anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34 7, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But notice this, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, Jonah's anger centered on misunderstanding God's character as described in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is in the context of Israel worshiping false idols, a golden calf that they made at the foot of Mount Sinai while they were waiting for Moses to come down with the Ten Commandments. And the context as well was then they engaged in immoral behavior that always follows idolatry, both of which violated God's covenant. And God said, I'm going to kill them. I am going to kill them, Moses, and start a new people through you. And Moses said, don't do it, Lord. And Moses interceded for Israel. Moses, I want you to remember the greater Moses, Jesus. That's a picture that we're meant to have in our minds and a connection we're meant to make. And so God says, okay, based on your intercession, Moses, I will have mercy on them. And then Moses says, can I see your face? And God brings him up and God shields his face so when he sees his back and as God is passing by Moses, God explains to Moses who he is. And when he explains to Moses who he is, that's Psalm 34, 6 and 7. We we catch a glimpse of this. In Psalm 106, which I believe is on the screen, verses 19 to 23, this glimpse of God's covenant mercy that he showed to Israel on the mountain that day. It says this, Psalm 106, 19 to 23, they made a calf at Oreb, this is Mount Sinai, they, Israel, they made a calf and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, they forgot God, they forgot God. It's the greatest danger, church, for us. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. That's the Exodus. Verse 22. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Verse 23. Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach, interceded before them to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Oh, friends, I cannot continue to preach without telling you this is a picture of Jesus. Moses was meant to point to Jesus. He himself said, there's a greater one coming after me. Now, Jonah would not have been aware of Jesus, but he certainly would have been aware of Moses. He understood this passage. But see, the problem was he didn't understand the passage. See, see Jonah, the bottom line is that Jonah was happy that God showed mercy toward Israel at Mount Sinai after their false worship and immoral behavior. But he was displeased that God showed mercy toward Nineveh after their false worship and immoral and violent behavior. So okay to show mercy to Israel, but not to Nineveh, was Jonah's thinking. Why? Because he misunderstood God's covenant mercy. Sadly, Jonah misunderstood God's covenant with Abraham. Something, by the way, that Moses did not misunderstand. Jonah misunderstood God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations through him, through his seed. In fact, this is a major purpose throughout the Bible. Jonah forgot that. He misunderstood that. It's interesting. Jonah 4 is the first and only time In the Old Testament, that Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is explicitly applied to Gentiles. It's the first and only time that Exodus 34, 6, and 7, I will be merciful on whom I will be merciful, is applied to Gentiles. Why? Because it's a picture of what God would do through Jesus, the greater Moses. Jonah misunderstood that, Jonah was mad. He was mad at God's indiscriminate display of mercy to people that did not deserve it, as if Israel did. Actually, actually Nineveh did more than Israel. Israel didn't even repent back at Sinai. At least Nineveh repented. Remember, Jim told us about the sackcloth and ashes and not eating and all that stuff. They at least did that. Israel didn't even do that back in uh, Exodus 32 to 34. God just had mercy on them because of whom? Moses who's a picture of whom? Jesus. Oh, Jonah, you did not understand. See, this text, Jonah 4, says far more about God than about Jonah. Jonah did not fully understand that God's grace was for everyone whom God determined would have it, Jew and Gentile. The quoting of Exodus 34 means that. Daniel Timmer, in his wonderful commentary, says the following: God's compassion to Israel in Exodus 32 through 34 is no different from his compassion to Nineveh. Do I have the quote there in the notes? Okay. God's compassion to Israel in Exodus 32-34 is no different from his compassion to Nineveh in our text. He has cast his description of God's reaction in, jo- in Jonah 3:10, in the same words as God's decision to spare Israel in Exodus 32:14. One difference is that Israel had not repented, but Nineveh had. God spared Israel because of his gracious response to Moses' intercession. Application for us. We see Jesus, the greater Jonah here. We are spared based on Jesus and Jesus alone, the greater Moses. And he is the one who has interceded for us, not based on anything we have done. See, Jonah did not understand that. He did not understand God's covenant mercy toward the Ninevites in chapter 4. And Jonah forgot. He forgot God's mercy toward him back in chapter 2. He forgot it. By the time he gets to chapter 4, he forgot that God had actually been merciful to Jonah and saved him from this great fish, though he was a rebellious prophet fleeing from God's presence. Here's an application question for you. Have you forgotten God's mercy toward you. If you have, if you've forgotten God's mercy toward you, and if you fail to understand the nature of God's covenant mercy, then you will be like Jonah. You will feel trapped and frustrated like Jonah. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, we see Jonah so angry, so upset, that he asks God to take him. He asked God to kill him. He says, God, I can't take this anymore. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's anger at God turns sulky inward. He just wants to quit, to die, to take his ball and to go home. Have you ever been angry at God's decision to to do or not do something that you think he should do or not do, and then simply quit? Or have you wanted to quit? Go home in a pouty, sulky inner rage. You know you can't fight God, so you just give up. That's where Jonah was. And here's the irony. The irony is that Jonah now wants to die because of God's gracious and compassionate nature when he himself was saved from death because of that nature. Sin is... Temporary insanity, is it not? We we think some of the craziest things, but we do think them, don't we? See, Jonah was crushed by the fact that God had acted with unprecedented mercy toward the Gentiles, saving them from punishment as he had spared Israel at Sinai. I mean, at this point, God ends up being Jonah's enemy. It's like Jonah's thinking, am I dreaming this? God's my enemy? And these Ninevites are God's friends? What's going on here? Timner again says, Jonah is praying for death because the Lord's attributes so frequently stated to praise him are loathsome to the prophet. Those attributes being his grace. And his unwilling participation in their application has deprived his life of meaning. Jonah did not want to participate in God's attribute of mercy toward these hated Ninevites, period. So kill me. Take me home. I'm out of here. You know what's beautiful? Is that very attribute of God that made Jonah want to kill himself is exercised by God in verse 4. Look at verse 4. God begins a counseling session with Jonah. He doesn't do it the way I would. Yeah, I would be like throwing lightning bolts all around Jonah, you know. I'd be like showing like heavenly videos of, Jonah, this is you. Jonah, this is the big ugly fish that I appointed to swallow you. Jonah, this is what you look like after three days in his stomach with, indigest, with the digestive bile all over your head. Jonah, this is you that vomited up on the land. Jonah, this is you smiling, praising me, you know. I'd be like, what is wrong with you? God doesn't do that. And though we're laughing about that, neither should we with one another. Um, I've been moved by uh, something I heard from David and Melinda Bush, who, who went to the CCEF, Christian Counseling Education Foundation, uh, um, retreat or uh, conference on counseling. And one of the key elements that they brought back is, is the, the ability, the art, the gift of asking questions when one is counseling someone. And, and, and especially when one is counseling someone who is being a knucklehead like Jonah. And it's obvious to everybody but them. But instead of berating them and saying, can't you see? Take a deep breath, which is tough sometimes for a Cuban guy to do. <sighs> just say, can I ask you a question? Though I want to beat your brains in, can I just ask you a question? And look at the question that God answered. Joan, asked Jonah in verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let, let me rephrase the question for you. Here's the question. Have you any right to be angry, Jonah? See, God wanted Jonah to look inward. In essence, the question is, who are you to pass judgment on God's right to exercise His mercy on whom He will? By definition, it's His mercy. It's not your mercy, Jonah. It's God's mercy. See, God's question was was a gracious call for Jonah to rethink 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 his position this is what we use to rethink our position every sermon is god's gracious call for you to rethink your position particularly when your position is bogus which it often is apart from this word or at least semi-bogus but jonah was frustrated he was angry He did not answer God back. He did not want to have his thinking adjusted. He did not want to have his his position rethought. Nope. Jonah, he's angry. You know what, God? You and I are not on the same page. Are you on the same page with God this morning? See, God was being kind to Jonah in his question. He sympathized with Jonah. He cared for Jonah. Oh, friend, application, God cares for us when we're frustrated, when we're angry at him, when we're like that little brother. I don't know if you had a big brother. I did. He's a good guy, but he did do this to me every once in a while. And and I was 10 years younger than him. Still am 10 years younger than him. And he put his hand, he would put his hand on my head and I'd be so mad and I'd just be flailing my arms. He'd just be laughing at me, you know? (laughs) Um. He could have decked me with one hit. He was just he was laughing. You know, Jonah's like that. He just flattened his arms. God, what's going on here? But God cared for him, He was patient with him. Though they were not on the same page, God asked him a question to see if Jonah would then get on the right page. He's doing that for some of you this morning. God often sends someone into our lives to ask us that question so that we might rethink our position, rethink our interpretation of life according to this word rather than our own ways or the world's ways so that we might get on the same page with God. But Jonah refused. Didn't answer God. So God is graciously going to take Jonah out for a little field trip to continue the class on a hill overlooking Nineveh. And we get to listen in, my friends, because we desperately need the same lesson God taught Jonah. We need to understand more fully and remember more clearly God's mercy. Point two, understand and remember God's sovereign mercy. His covenant mercy, point one, his sovereign mercy. In Jonah 4, 5, Jonah goes outside. He sits on an eastern hill overlooking the city. Remember, eastern hill toward Iran. This is present-day Iraq. Kind of a hill that's facing toward Iran and, and the mountains there in Iran. And Jonah did what every good sort of desert guy does. He built himself a little earthen hut. All right? He went outside the city, sat in the east of the city, made a booth. It says booth in mine. Okay, it's a hut. It's like a little earthen hut out of the clay, the sand. There's no trees in the desert. It's hot. So he builds an earthen hut and he sits in the earthen hut. And it says in verse 5 he did that because he wanted to see. What would become of the city at the end of verse 5? See, he's hoping, kind of like Jim talked about last week. He said, you know what? I know these Ninevites don't deserve mercy. Okay, God's given it to them. But maybe, just maybe, you know, he agreed with Jim. They're not really saved. God's just deferring his judgment on these guys. Maybe they'll do something really bad, and God will let them have it. So I'm just going to sit here in my little hut, you know. (laughs) Just watch. Filled with anger filled with rage, filled with self-righteousness. Have you ever found yourself in a little wooden earthen hut overlooking someone's life, hoping God will let them have it because you know they deserve that? Oh, friend, that's a miserable existence. He was having a big, fat pity party, and it was about to get worse. He was an angry prophet. He was despairing, self-justifying. And, oh, friends, he was in need of a Savior, as are we, as am I, when we get like this. And God came to him, now remember class is in session, but it's going to be object lesson day. God came to him with mercy and slowness to anger, to teach him about the sovereign mercy of God. This time, not through a storm like he did in chapter one or a great fish, but through a plant and a great wind. Look at verse six. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, appointed, same word appointed that's used in chapter two, I believe it is, or one, where he says he appointed a great fish. Okay? Same word. Speaks of God's sovereignty. And this plant was going to provide for Jonah what? It's the desert. It's hot. Right. Shade over his head. That little earthen hut gets very hot under the sun. Think of a little baking tool. You know, think of a little baking device, okay? And if you, if you put it in heat, it's just going to get hot inside there. So he appoints this huge plant a gourd with huge leaves, and it grows up very quickly and it provides shade for Jonah. And look at this at the end there of verse 7. And to save him from his discomfort. And what does Jonah say? Oh, Lord, thank you so much. Look at verse 4b. Jonah was exceedingly Glad, that word exceedingly is similar to the word exceedingly in verse 1. He was exceedingly angry about God's mercy toward the Ninevites, but he was exceedingly glad about God's mercy toward him. Oh, friends, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. Judge me according to my intentions. Judge them according to their actions. And we sit in our little earthen huts and stew in the hot sun of our own hypocrisy. Here's the main point of the book. Here's the main point. Jonah rejoices with great joy over his own deliverance, yet expresses grief over the deliverance of the Ninevites. If this is you, friend, ask others to help you see where you have rejoiced with great joy over your own deliverance and yet express grief over the deliverance of the Ninevites in your life. And here comes God's object lesson. Through nature, Here comes the parable that's going to teach Jonah and us about God's sovereign mercy. It begins with the compound name used for God in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now, the Lord God. That's unusual. If you look at Jonah, normally it's the Lord. It's the Lord. The Lord is that tetragrammaton, whoa, tetragrammaton, Yahweh. That's the name that normally was associated when it comes to mind with the covenant with Israel. Yahweh is the name for the Lord God when speaking of how he relates to his people. Now, the Lord God, that word translated God into the English, is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. It's fun to do that. Elohim. Make sure you're not looking at anybody so you don't spit in their face. Elohim is the name used to associate God with Gentiles. Interesting. Why, why did the author now suddenly use this compound name? Pay attention to scripture. Pay attention to words. God uses words to communicate truth. Why? I believe Mr. Daniel Timmer, and I do think we have that quote, nails it with this quote. When the author of the book, oh yeah, when the author of the book changes his pattern of usage in chapter 4 and connects Jonah with God, Elohim, he has most probably done so in order to show that the God who has shown mercy and compassion toward the Gentiles, Elohim, is the same God, Yahweh, Jonah knows, and the same God Israel has known from her beginning. This is revolutionary. This is what will not become clear until almost 800 years later when Jesus comes and preaches and he says the kingdom has come and he goes to a Samaritan woman and reveals himself to her. And years after that, when Peter is told to go to Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and years after that, when Paul is preaching Jesus and Jesus alone, by faith alone and Christ alone to Gentiles, and says you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, because you are Gentiles, you're part of God's people in Christ alone. But we see it, for the, not for the first time, but we see it here kind of peeking into the future. This is the beauty of biblical theology. It's like a great mystery. It's like being a detective. It's like a biblical CSI, looking at the clues, putting it under those lights, you know, those things. I'm sure those things aren't even real, but it looks cool on TV. Oh, look, there's blood. And and, and you say, "Oh, this is what that is." And follow that stream through scripture. I want I'm trying to teach you how to read your Bibles. See, this is, the major discomfort that Jonah had wasn't the sun baking his brains and his head in that earthen hut. No, the major discomfort that Jonah had was the fact that he didn't agree with God being merciful and compassionate to a bunch of pagan Ninevites. The plant saved Jonah from the discomfort of the sun, but it could not save him from the discomfort of his wrong understanding of God's sovereign mercy. See, Jonah w- was very glad about a little more shade for, for his head. He was just as glad about the shade for his head as he was enraged when God's mercy disappointed his hope that Nineveh would be destroyed. So, verse 7, what does God do? He takes the plant away. Look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Same word, appointed. Who's in charge here? God Points the great fish, appoints the plant, appoints the worm. He is God of all. He's creator of all. Don't you see that? He appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And not only does he send a worm to kill the plant that provided the shade, but just to get Jonah's attention, he's going to up the ante. He's going to turn up the temperature, literally, a little bit on the class. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. A scorching east wind. Those winds are called Sirocco's. Sirocco's. And they were known in desert times to come flying off those mountains from Iran, east wind, he's on the east side, and they would blow, imagine like a convection oven, it's just blowing hot air, to bake something. Well, that's the same thing that's happening, only it's baking a prophet, a prophet's being made. (laughs) And that same kind of scorching wind bakes us, doesn't it? Uh, my friend Corey's from California. This would be what they're called the Santa Ana winds, if you've heard about those, that come in off the mountains, and those Santa Ana winds are superheated and they've caused some of the worst forest fires in the West. You read about them every once in a while, see them on TV. It's the same kind of wind. So he takes away the shade and brings a scorching wind. Do I have your attention yet, Jonah? Jonah's mad. I mean, he's really mad. Verse 9, he's so enraged that he wants to die. Excuse me, at the end of verse 8, he was fainting, and he said, last couple of lines in verse 8, and he said that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And here comes God's second question to Jonah. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And now, God's going to bring the lesson home to Jonah. In his mercy, God is going to condescend to teach the prophet. And in doing so, he teaches us this morning. He's going to tell them why this is not true. And in essence, in verses 10 and 11, he's going to employ a method of argumentation that we know as going from the lesser to the greater. The Bible uses it elsewhere. Matthew seven eleven. Jesus used it. So I can, you can understand this argumentation. Here's how Jesus used it. On the screen, Matthew seven eleven. Okay, I'll just read it. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So if you're evil and you give good gifts to your children lesser, how much more... Will your father who is in heaven give you good gifts if you ask of him? So here's here's God's argument. Jonah, if you pity that plant lesser, the plant that you did not cause to come into being, the plant that you did not deserve, you did not work for it, you did not tend it, you did not grow it, nothing. If you pity that plant when it no longer gives you shade, should you not pity the Ninevites? who are a bunch of people who don't know the right hand from their left. They have no discernment. They're caught in evil. You pity the plant. Shouldn't you pity the people? Again, a quote from Brian Estelle. Here's God's point. You, Jonah, did not create, take care of, or nurture the plant. I, however, did all this for Nineveh. The plant appeared overnight, but Nineveh grew up over many months and years and has very many people in it. How much more does it deserve care, concern, and pity? Nineveh has many people who are entrapped in their sinful lifestyles and don't know how to get out, who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Jonah cared about the plant. Shouldn't God care about the city of Nineveh? See, Jonah's problem is he didn't understand God's sovereign mercy. He blurred the distinction between creature and creator. He did not understand that God is able to have mercy on whom he will because he's the creator, the creator of the plant and the creator of the city. That's the point of the final question. When God says to him, verse 11, look at it, should I not pity Nineveh? See, this question is the key to the entire book. This question is what drives our text this morning. It drives the book of, of Jonah. It drives us out to connect with our neighbor, friends. Is God's mercy his to do with as he pleases? Is God free to be merciful to whomever he desires? Or does he have to run it by you and me first? Back to the driving question. Can God display his mercy to whomever and whenever he pleases. Oh, friends, Jonah, he had no right even over the plant. God had every right to exercise pity over the plant, the city, the people of Nineveh, you, me, whomever he desires, whenever he desires. Nothing falls outside of God's jurisdiction. Romans 9, 14 to 16 says it this way. Paul in the New Testament, quoting Exodus properly. and, And this is what Jonah points to is the fulfillment of this. Here in Romans 9, Paul says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part by no means? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Will Jonah understand and remember this sovereign, absolute sovereign and free ability to exercise His mercy on God's part? Will we? Will we understand and remember the absolute, absolute sovereignty and freedom of God to act as He pleases? See, this final question, it it was posed not just to Jonah, but to the entire nation of Israel. And it's posed to us this morning. Now, the original audience the original audience of Jews prior to the cross, 7th century B.C., they would have been sorely tempted to scream out the answer to that question. If you were in Hebrew class as a little kid and they would have read that final question to end the book of Jonah, you as a kid, especially if you're like me, you speak before you think, you would have said, no, kill the Ninevites. And you know what? We might say the same. But, oh, friends... Having read the story of Jonah, saying no sounds so petty, so selfish, so immature, so petulant, and so embarrassing, only because it is. I pray that God would engage us through this question in verse 11. May he engage our hearts through Jesus, the greater Jonah, who also stood on a hill. He stood on a hill overlooking a city, but unlike Jonah, Jesus wept over that city. He didn't sulk over the city. Matthew 23, 37. Matthew 23, 37. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? You and you were not willing. And then Jesus, after saying that, went to another hill, to a hill called Golgotha. And he died for his people in that city and in every city that has ever existed and will ever exist until his return. As Brian Estelle says in his commentary, the compassion of God revealed so powerfully at the end of Jonah is quintessentially manifested on the hill of Golgotha. Yes, it is, friends. And now let's go to that hill to understand and to remember God's sovereign mercy. Ushers, would you please come forward to serve us in communion? And as the ushers stand to prepare to serve us, let me direct your attention to this passage on the screen and commentary about the wisdom of remembering God's sovereign mercy. Psalm 107.43 says the following. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love. That's another word for God's mercy. The Hebrew word is hesed, hesed, God's covenant mercy, his his mercies, his steadfast love. Let them consider God's steadfast love of the Lord, Yahweh. And then the commentary from the ESV Study Bible Notes. This verse invites whoever is wise to attend to these things. That's what we're doing right now specifically to the many ways in which God has displayed his steadfast love, his mercies. Such a meditation, listen friends, such a meditation will increase one's wisdom. You want to be wise? Meditate on this. Pay attention to this. Focus on this. Think about nothing but this. Be still. And know that he's God. Understand and remember his mercies. The Bible itself teaches us. Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. Jesus knew. He knew we so often forget. He knew we so often misunderstand And he gave us this sign and symbol of the covenant so that we may not forget, we might always remember and understand. Verse 25, In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in what? Remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, Jesus is the greater Jonah who did not sit on a hill overlooking the city in anger, waiting for its destruction. But he climbed a hill after having wept over the city and willingly went to die on the cross that we might receive his mercy. That's what we're celebrating this morning. Let us remember his covenant mercy, dear friends, as we celebrate communion together. Ushers, please come down. If you have not received God's covenant mercy this morning in Christ, I ask you, please do not take this bread and cup Later on in 1 Corinthians 11, it warns against eating it in a wrong way, not understanding it. See, for it is Christ's sacrifice on the hill called Golgotha and our response to that sacrifice in repentance and faith that we celebrate in communion. If you have not done that, this meal is not for you. But here's what I invite you to do. Pray with me as I'm about to pray. And as you watch people eating it, I want you to have a hunger and thirst for God. We're going to end with that song. And then I want you to respond if God is speaking to you. And if he has, I want you to come and talk to me at the end of this service. I want to speak to you. I want to speak to you. I want to speak to you.